Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter, the epistle of 1 Peter. We'll be this morning in chapter 2, and I'd like us to look together at verses 4 through 8. 1 Peter, chapter 2, and we'll look this morning at verses 4 through 8. Please follow along as I read 1 Peter 2, beginning in verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Can I ask that we pray one more time? Let's pray together. Father, now we've come to your word. We've come to the very central part of this service of worship. Please, Lord, assist us in the consideration of the scriptures and work within us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I'm happy to announce that uh, beginning next week, for the next four weeks, we will uh, take a break from our series in 1 Peter. And we'll have a four-week series uh, marking the Advent calendar, preparing us for the celebration of Christmas at the end of the month. So uh, we're going to take a break from 1 Peter after today. Beginning next week, we'll be in an Advent series uh, beginning next Sunday. Uh, now, this morning, I, I want to preach from these verses, but I'm, I'm not going to say everything or highlight everything that might be observed and expounded from these verses, because we're going to return to this passage when we return to 1 Peter in January. So, we're looking this morning at verses 4 through 8, uh, and, and as uh, we zoom out a little further and look at verses 9, 10, and following, we realize that these verses are pivotal to Peter's argument in the book of 1 Peter and have tremendous implications for the church and for the new community of God's people. Peter's going to talk about how, how we were not a people once, but now we are a people and we're considered a, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people for God's own possession. And, and the beginning of that idea is established in these verses, especially in verse 5, where we're said to be living stones that come together to build a spiritual house, a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit, where we offer spiritual sacrifices to God. I'm not going to say this morning, though, anything about really the corporate implications of these verses. This morning, I want to consider what we learn about Jesus Christ in particular from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 8, particularly this idea, this truth that's presented, that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. He is the rock. He is the stone, and how we're to understand this idea. So, two main headings this morning, and about 80 to 90 percent of our time is going to be spent on the first main heading. We'll consider, first of all, Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, and then we'll consider, secondly, two responses 
to Jesus. Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, and then two responses to Jesus. Consider with me first, Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. Now, we don't use that word cornerstone very much, at least not in the way it would have first been used and come into uh, our vocabulary. Uh, So the cornerstone, in fact, if, if you walk out of this exit this morning and just walk about 20 feet on this way, at the corner of this building, you will see what is traditionally referred to as a cornerstone, and there you'll see an inscription Uh, I think it says Northwest Baptist Church, this building erected in, I forget the actual day, but it's in 1967. And uh, that was the cornerstone of this building, a commemorative sort of stone. I doubt that stone really did function in the same way a cornerstone would have functioned in the ancient world, but we still have some sense of the idea, and that could maybe help you with understanding what a cornerstone is. A cornerstone is essentially the first stone set in the construction of a building or structure, and all the other stones that make up the building are set in reference to this stone, thus determining the position of the entire structure. So you're going to build a building, you've measured it all out, the first stone is said to be the cornerstone, and every other stone derives its place and significance in reference to that cornerstone. That cornerstone is the foundation. And every other stone has its position relative to that cornerstone. And that's the sense in which this word is going to be used in our passage this morning. So read again with me, if you will, 1 Peter 2, just verses 4 and 5. As you come to Him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So, so Peter here refers to Jesus as a living stone. He is a living stone in the sense that Jesus is alive, amen? He's risen from the dead. He's not a dead, silent rock or stone. He's a living stone. And he's said to be a stone in that he is, in some sense, fulfilling Uh, something the Old Testament Scriptures foretold would happen. There would be this stone, this rock, this cornerstone. Jesus is said to be the living stone. And we see in verse 4, we learn that He was, in some sense, rejected by men. Certainly, He was in a major way rejected by the Jews, His people. John 1, He came to His own, and His own received Him not. Isaiah foretold that the coming servant of the Lord would be despised and rejected of men. And so, those reading Peter's letter, whether it was Jews who rejected Jesus or Gentiles who rejected Jesus, they would know, they would have seen people who rejected this living stone who is Jesus. But then he tells in verse 4 that in the sight of God, this living stone is chosen and precious. This stone in God's eyes, in God's purposes, God's plans would be given a place of preeminence. He would be in some sense foundational to God's purposes and God's plans. And then we read in verse 5 that uh, Christ, as a living stone, apparently in some sense, becomes the foundation for a new community of living stones that are being built up into a spiritual house. He's the first, He's the preeminent, He's the cornerstone, and then all those who are born again who have been made alive through Jesus Christ, through faith in Him, we are said to be living stones also. And and we are being erected upon this foundation that is Christ in reference to the cornerstone to erect a sort of building. And this building is said to be a kind of sanctuary, a kind of temple in which God is worshipped. And then Peter, in very short compass, 
verses 6, 7, and 8, introduces some significant Old Testament background to this idea of Christ as the cornerstone. Now, I want us to understand that Old Testament background and the text to which Peter refers, and then I'd like us to appreciate the way in which the New Testament reflects back on this Old Testament background. So this is is Old Testament background, these passages Peter's going to quote, and then I want us to see how the New Testament writers, particularly Jesus, Peter, and Paul, reflect back on that Old Testament material. So there are three Old Testament passages cited here in 1 Peter 2, 6 through 8, all are applied to Jesus. Let's look at them in their order of presentation in 1 Peter. Uh, First, if you would, turn to Isaiah chapter 28. And if you would, keep a a finger in Isaiah and in 1 Peter chapter 2. The first passage Peter quotes in 1 Peter 2, 6 is Isaiah 28 verse 16. Now, as you're turning there, I'll give you something of the context of this verse. The context is the judgment of Ephraim and Jerusalem. Uh, The Lord through Isaiah, describes them as having made a covenant with death, with Sheol. You could hardly imagine a more terrifying image than making a covenant, being married to death, being married to Sheol. He says, they have made lies their refuge. They have taken shelter in falsehood. Judgment is being conveyed in Isaiah 28. But in the context, in the very middle of this judgment that is being pronounced over Ephraim and Jerusalem, we have this promise. We have this ray of hope that God is going to set a stone in Zion, and all the lies and all the idolatry and all the wickedness of Ephraim is going to be swept away and judged, but there will be left this stone as the foundation, and for any who believe in Him, they will not be put to shame. So follow along as I read Isaiah 28, beginning of verse 14, and we'll read all the way through verse 18. The Lord says through Isaiah, therefore hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers, who rule this people in Jerusalem, because you have said, we have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we have an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us, for we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we have taken shelter. Now, of course, the Israelites didn't actually say these words, but the Lord is saying this is in essence what you have said and what you have done. But then in verse 16 we read this, therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste, the ESV has it. Now, that's a hard phrase to interpret exactly. It might help you to understand the meaning of that phrase if you think about what might be the opposite of this phrase. Uh, We could say, whoever believes in Him will find rest won't be in haste, won't be anxious, won't be running away from the judgment of God. Whoever believes in Him will not be in haste, but will find rest. Verse 17, and I will make justice the line, and righteousness the plumb line, and hail will sweep away the refuge of lies, and water will overwhelm the shelter. Then your covenant with death will be annulled, and your agreement with Sheol will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, you will be beaten down by it. Judgment, censure, Wrath is coming, but in the midst of this judgment, there's this promise. I'm setting a stone in Zion, a precious stone, a cornerstone, and whoever embraces Him, believes in Him, will not be in haste, will not be put to shame, will find rest. Now, the second passage we see quoted in 1 Peter 2, 7, it comes from Psalm 118, 
verse 22. So keep a finger in Isaiah because we're going to turn back there in a moment. But if you would, please turn to Psalm 118. The passage that's quoted, the verse that's quoted is verse 22, and the context is quite positive. It's very bright. God is working deliverance for His chosen one. It's not exactly clear who the chosen one is. In some sense, it would be proper to think of the chosen one as Israel or as the Davidic king or even as the Messiah. We know from the New Testament that this is a messianic psalm, that God has in view here the coming Messiah. But let's read the context, Psalm 118, beginning at verse 19. The psalmist writes, Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That's the verse referenced in 1 Peter 2.7 that Peter references. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Now, how exactly the Jews before Jesus would have understood this reference to the stone which the builders rejected, which became the chief cornerstone, is not exactly clear. But the overwhelming point, the overwhelming sense of Psalm 118 is that God is going to do something to bring about deliverance, and it will be centered on this cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Okay, one more passage to turn to, the third passage that Peter quotes. It's in Isaiah chapter 8. 1 Peter 2.6, Peter quotes Isaiah 28, verse 16. 1 Peter 2.7, he quotes Psalm 118, verse 22. Now in 1 Peter 2.8, he quotes Isaiah 8, verses 14 through 15. Again, about this stone that is the focus of Peter's thinking. Please follow along as I read Isaiah 8. We'll read verses 11 through 15. Again, the context here now is judgment on Israel. For the Lord spoke thus to me with His strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, Him, him excuse me, the Lord of hosts, Him you shall honor as holy. Let Him be your fear, and let Him be your dread. Now here's the passage Peter quotes, and He will become a sanctuary, and a stone of offense, and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken, they shall be snared and taken." Very negative passage. The context here is not deliverance and salvation. The context here is judgment, judgment for the house of Israel. But again, it's God's activity that is emphasized. God's going to do something decisive. God is going to raise up this stone of offense, this rock of stumbling, and many in Israel will stumble over it and fall and be broken. And Peter understands, Isaiah 28, 16, Psalm 118, verse 22, the stone which the builders rejected becoming the cornerstone, and this rock of stumbling and offense, all referring to the same figure, all referring to Jesus. So what do we have so far in these Old Testament passages? 
These passages speak of God laying a stone in Zion, which is seen as a decisive act, the beginning of some purpose of God. God is going to do something. God's activity is emphasized. He's going to set this stone in Zion, and there will be implications. This stone will be rejected by the Jews, but though Israel will reject Him, God will still make Him to be the chief cornerstone. He will be God's foundation. Everything will depend on one's response to Him, the cornerstone. And it is foretold that those who believe on Him, all those who believe on Him, will not be in haste. They will not be put to shame. They will find rest and salvation. The stone is supplied for them for their salvation and their deliverance. But for many, especially wayward Israel, He will become a stone of stumbling. For all those who don't believe in Him, they will stumble over this rock. He will be to them a rock of offense, and they will fall and be broken into pieces and come to utter ruin. Now, these are not the only Old Testament passages that speak of this coming stone, this cornerstone, this rock, but these are the preeminent passages. And the New Testament writers in a number of places make reference to these particular passages. Now, apparently, even in pre-Christian interpretation, that is before the coming of Christ, the rabbis and the Jewish leaders did understand these passages in some sense to be messianic. That is, in some sense, they were connected to the coming Messiah. So when Peter begins to apply these passages to the Messiah, reads them in a messianic fashion, he's very much in line with the interpretation of the Jewish leaders. What is so radical and so striking about Peter's interpretation of these passages is that he assigns them to Jesus in particular. Peter's saying Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. Those passages that talked about this stone that would be rejected by the builders and that would become the chief cornerstone, this rock of offense, this stone of stumbling that Israel would trip over and fall into utter ruin, this is the rock. It's Jesus of Nazareth. And it's this point he wishes to establish to his readers. But now I want to turn from the Old Testament passages. They're quoted there in 1 Peter 2. We've just looked at them together to consider a few other places where the New Testament writers reflect on these passages. Jesus Himself and the other New Testament writers unequivocally recognize this cornerstone, this rock of offense, in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Himself does this in Matthew 21, uh, in also in the parallel passages in Mark 12 and Luke 20. And, and the passage there in Matthew 21 is the parable of the tenants. I wonder if you know that parable. I'll give you a quick synopsis. Uh, Jesus envisions this master who plants a vineyard. And the master goes away into another country, and he entrusts the vineyards to particular tenants to care for the vineyard. And then when harvest time would come, when the season for bearing fruit would come, these tenants would harvest the fruit and share it with the master. And so the season for the fruit to be born has come, and the master sends uh, servants of his to go and collect the fruit. But what do the tenants do? The tenants take those servants, they beat them, they cast them out, and they kill them. Then the master reasons, well, I'll send them more servants, this time more in number, and they'll listen to these servants this time. And so he sends more servants to them to gather the fruit, and the tenants do the very same thing to them. They beat them, they stone them, and they kill them. And then the master concludes, well, here's what I'll do. I'll send them my own son. Surely they won't treat my son spitefully in the way they have treated these servants. I'm going to send them my son. And so the son is sent, 
And they did the very same thing to the son. They beat him, they stoned him, they kill him, and they reason, now we'll take his inheritance from him. And then Jesus, speaking to a Jewish audience, the religious leaders would have been among that audience, Jesus asked this question, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Kids, if you've been listening to me tell this story, this parable of the tenants, what do you think the master should do to these tenants who, who treated the Lord's servants in these terrible ways and even killed them and even killed his own son? How should he treat them? Well, they said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the Scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It was marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. We talk often about Jesus as gentle and lowly, Jesus who invites people to come and to eat the bread of life and to drink the livers, rivers of living water that Jesus will give them. And we should talk that way. Everyone here should have this picture of Jesus, that he stands arms wide open to receive sinners. That's who Jesus is. But for any who reject him, he still talks this way to them. If you reject Jesus, he will become to you a stone of offense and he will crush you. And you should be terrified if you reject Jesus. The gospels are filled with statements like this from the Lord to those who would reject the cornerstone, those who would reject the Lord. In this passage, Jesus understands the builders Psalm 118, verse 22, to be the chief priests and the Pharisees. I didn't read on, but, but they go on to discern that Jesus is talking about them, and they hate him, and they want to kill him. Uh, Jesus understands, of course, himself to be the stone that they rejected, which will become the cornerstone. And he says, and the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. In other words, the rejection of Jesus will ultimately lead to their judgment and ruin, but you'll notice the pivotal issue is where they stand in relation to Him. It's the setting of the stone that is decisive. What matters is where you stand in relation to Jesus. Now, if you would, please turn to Acts chapter 4. I want us to see how Peter, in his preaching, uh, uses this Old Testament material, and how he reflects back on this material of the coming rock, the coming stone, the stone which the builders rejected. Again, I'll give you a little bit of context. Peter and John, through the help of God's Spirit, have healed a man who was lame, a lame beggar. And this offends the religious leaders. And now Peter and John are appearing before uh, the chief priest and the Jewish rulers, and they're being threatened. And this is what Peter says in Acts chapter 4, verse 10. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by Him this man is standing before you well. Now listen to this. This Jesus 
is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Some 600 or 700 years prior, we were given this promise that the cornerstone would be set in Zion. Some 1,000 years prior, there was this promise that the builders would reject the stone and the Lord would make Him to be the chief cornerstone. This Jesus is that stone that the builders rejected. This Jesus has become the chief cornerstone, and there is salvation in no other name than His. Peter here immediately moves to the exclusivity of salvation being found only in Christ. The cornerstone is the Lord Jesus, and there is salvation in no one else. Now, the Apostle Paul at least twice applies the Old Testament picture of the Messiah as the cornerstone I'm going to pass over those passages. I'll just give them to you. It's Ephesians 2.20. There in that passage, Paul is envisioning the church as this new people of God being built into this great structure built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And in chapter 2, verse 20, he says, on Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. And then the other passage in Paul is found in Romans 9, verses 32 through 33. And there, Paul is dealing with the idea of the Jews being rejected and the Gentiles being included. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now back to our passage in 1 Peter 2. Okay, so we straight away to see the Old Testament background to our passage, how the New Testament reflects on that Old Testament background. Now we want to see what Peter says, 1 Peter 2, verses 6 through 8. Peter is harmonizing all three of these Old Testament passages, Isaiah 28, 16, Psalm 118, verse 22, and Isaiah 8, 14 through 15. He's saying they all have Jesus in view. And what does Peter want to establish by his references to these Old Testament passages? How is he employing these passages? Three things briefly. Number one, he wishes to establish that Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, has been rejected by men but is chosen and precious in the sight of God. The stone has been rejected. Surely these writers would have known the gospel accounts that he had been rejected by the Jews. He came to his own, they didn't receive him. But surely these Christians in Asia Minor would have witnessed Jesus being rejected by all kinds of people. Jesus is to this day rejected by men. But he's saying, though you see him rejected by men, though he was rejected by his own people, make no mistake, in the sight of God, He is chosen and precious. He has the place of preeminence. He's God's agent. He's God's own Son. He has become the chief cornerstone. As Jesus Himself says in John 6, 27, on Him the Father has set His seal. In Philippians 2, verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Says, you Christians recognize that though Jesus is rejected by men, though He has been rejected by men, He remains God's chosen one. And Peter reminds these Christians, don't you forget, though so many reject him, this living stone, this cornerstone is chosen and precious in the sight of God. A second point Peter establishes here in these passages, and that is that Jesus Christ as the cornerstone is the foundation of the new Christian community. Jesus Christ as the cornerstone is the foundation 
for the new Christian community. I'm not going to say all that I might say about this because we're going to return to this theme when we come back to this passage in January. But he says, verse 5, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He's the cornerstone of the building. And this is where it would help to remember the introduction of the sermon and the function of the cornerstone. All the other stones are set in reference to the cornerstone. They derive their meaning, they derive their place in the overall building in reference to Jesus. God is building a foundation on Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone, and we, the people of God as living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house for God through Jesus Christ. But you see, every stone, every living stone in the church has its place only in reference to Jesus Christ. You have your place in this particular local church only in reference to Jesus Christ, not in reference to a common background, not in reference to a shared cultural heritage, not in reference to a certain skill set or intellectual aptitude. We have our place in the spiritual house purely and only and totally by reference to Jesus Christ who is the cornerstone. And we have our place in the church, in the building, in the new community, in reference to Him. Now a third point, and the most important point that Peter is advancing here in these verses, that is that Jesus Christ as the cornerstone is God's chosen agent of both salvation and judgment. Jesus Christ as the cornerstone, as the rock of stumbling, is God's chosen agent of both salvation and judgment. Look again at 1 Peter 2, verses 6 through 8. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe... He's still the stone to them. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Peter is saying Jesus Christ as the cornerstone, as the stone of stumbling, the stone that the builders rejected, Jesus Christ is God's chosen agent of both salvation and judgment. No one is neutral. What matters is what you do with Jesus. He is the dividing line. What is your relationship to the cornerstone? And Peter is saying the fate of every person is sealed by the setting of the stone. All humanity is divided into two categories, those who believe in Jesus and those who do not. But you see, Jesus is the focus. Do you believe in the stone? Well, He's the cornerstone to you, and you will not be put to shame. The honor, the benefit is for you who believe, but if you do not believe him, you remember the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, a rock of offense and a stone of stumbling. The Bible again and again teaches there's no way to come to God except through Jesus, that all humanity is divided into the people of God and those who are not his people, those who embrace the Lord Jesus Christ as God's provision of salvation and those who do not. There is one God, 1 Timothy 2.5, and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus himself said in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Like there's no other cornerstone. 
There's no other stone upon which your eternal destiny can be built outside of Jesus Christ. What ultimately divides men and women is not their background, it's not their race, their income, their works. What matters ultimately is what people do with Jesus. The cornerstone has been set. We will either believe on Him, embracing Him as the foundation of our lives and our salvation, or we will stumble over Him and fall to the utter ruin of our souls. Now, in the minutes that remain, I want to consider a little more carefully our second and last point. Consider these two responses that people have to Jesus. It's only two responses to Jesus. There's no third response. There's no middle way. You can't be neutral can't be lukewarm. There's only two responses to Jesus. And I'll say this, there may be some here who think there's a third response, who think there's a middle way. Well, I've not rejected Jesus. Well, have you embraced Him in repentance and faith? Well, no, I've not done that yet. There is no third way. There's no middle way. Your present unbelief is, in effect, rejection of Jesus. There are two kinds of people in the world. There are two ways to live. There are two places we find ourselves, either having faith in Jesus Christ or living in unbelief. Consider that first response to Jesus, which is faith, leading to rest and honor and salvation. Faith leading to rest, honor, and salvation. Peter quotes Isaiah 28, 16, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, And whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. He doesn't mean the credit is to you. He means the blessing, the benefit, the benediction. The honor is for you who believe. All those who believe in Him will not be put to shame. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, which is amazing, you will not be put to shame. Think of all the things that ought to make us ashamed. Think about standing in the presence of God with all of your sins, all those things that ought to make us ashamed. And the promise is for those who believe in the cornerstone, who have faith in Jesus Christ, they'll never be put to shame. They won't be in haste, as Isaiah says. I don't know why, but this picture pops into my mind when I read that particular line in Isaiah. They they will not be in haste. You think of the final judgment and how it's described in the most terrifying of terms. The wicked are going to run, they're going to scatter, and they're going to pray for the rocks and the hills to fall on them and cover them. Like like if Jesus comes back and you're outside of Christ, you're going to pray, please let this building collapse in on me because I I don't want to see the Lord. I don't want to take what's coming. It's not going to be like that for the believer. Those who have faith in Jesus Christ will not be in haste. They won't be put to shame. There's rest and salvation for them. Peter is saying that Jesus is the living stone, and for those who believe, He's like a cornerstone, a sure foundation, a rock of refuge, like solid ground under your feet that you can stand on in the midst of life's storms and in the midst of that great coming storm of judgment. For those who believe in Jesus, He becomes the foundation of their very lives and of their eternity. Everything in life is built on the rock who is Christ. And all that is called for and invited by the Lord to have rest and salvation is believing on the rock, having faith in the Lord. 
But consider with me the second response in our text. The second response is unbelief leading to stumbling and falling. There's faith leading to rest, salvation, deliverance. But the second response is unbelief, a lack of faith, rejecting the Lord, leading to stumbling and falling. Verse 7, so the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That's not good news for you if you've rejected Christ. If you don't believe, heed this warning. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. As I said, Peter is saying that Jesus is a living stone. And for those who believe, he's like a cornerstone, a sure foundation, a rock of refuge. But for those who do not believe, he becomes like this kind of stone you trip over, a rock in your shoe or something like that, a stone that's in your path, a stone that obstructs your walking. It's like, I don't want that stone there. Get that stone out of my way. It becomes a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. I'm offended that that stone is set up in my way. It becomes a stone of stumbling. To those who reject the stone, he will be to them a rock of offense, and they will stumble, and they will fall, and they will perish, and they will come to ruin. Now, why do they stumble? The rock of offense is set. Why do they stumble over the rock? Why do they fall? The answer is found in our text in verse 8. They stumble because they disobey the word. People who reject Jesus, why do they reject him? Why do they stumble over the rock of offense? They stumble because they disobey the word. The rejection of Christ and his gospel is no one's fault but their own. Now, in our day and age, people make all kinds of excuses for themselves. It seems that no one in our day is actually responsible for their behavior, their conduct, their decisions, their feelings. Our culture majors in this, in educating people on how to manufacture reasons to not actually be responsible for their actions and for their decisions. God doesn't see it that way. We are responsible for our decisions, we're responsible for our conduct, we're responsible for our works, we're responsible for whether or not we accept or reject the gospel. And I don't care who your parents are, I don't care what knocks are against you in life, I don't care what your background is, you are accountable before God for your decisions and for your choices, and you will be answerable to God if you disobey His word. All of us are answerable to Him, and the blame my friend, if you reject the Lord Jesus, it's not going to be on God, it's not going to be on your parents, it's not going to be on society, it is going to be on you. Don't you blame anyone else. If you can hear my words and understand them, you are answerable. Jesus Christ is offered to you. His arms are spread wide to you. He says that if you come to him in faith and repentance, you will be saved. You will not be put to shame. But if you reject him, he will crush you. He will be to you a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling, and you will be answerable. They stumble because they disobey the word. Now, what about that last phrase, as they were destined to do? 
They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. It's not an easy phrase to interpret, at least its connection to the rest of the verse. So there's two basic meanings, legitimate interpretations of this verse. We could ask it this way, should we take those words as they were destined to do, to refer to the stumbling only, or to the disobedience also? So as Peter's saying on the one hand, because they disobeyed the word, they were destined to stumble. As it happens when you reject Christ and disobey the word, you will stumble. That's going to be your destiny. You disobey the word, your fate is sealed, you will stumble as you were destined to do. That's the destiny of everyone who rejects Christ. They perish, they disobeyed, therefore they were destined to stumble by virtue of the fact they disobeyed the word. Well, that's obviously true. But could Peter also be saying that their disobedience to the word, their rejection of Christ was destined to happen. My personal opinion is that it's the former and not the latter. It's the first and not the second. That said, it's possible it could be both. It could be both, and in some sense it would be true that it's both. I'm very uninterested in getting to the bottom of this because there's no way exegetically to do that. But I can tell you three things are true from the Bible. Number one, nothing in this world happens outside of God's decree. Nothing in this world happens outside of God's decree. Everything that comes to pass, comes to pass according to God's decree. Truth number two, though everything that comes to pass is by God's decree, He is not the author of evil. The Bible couldn't teach that more plainly. Everything comes about according to God's decree, but He's not the author of evil. He doesn't make anyone sin. He doesn't tempt anyone to sin. God doesn't generate evil in the heart of men. Everything comes about according to God's decree. He is not the author of evil. Third truth, though God is sovereign in everything, we are responsible for our decisions and actions. How do you work that out? I don't know. It's taught in the Bible. And if I can't figure it out, it's not a problem with God. It's a problem with my stupid, depraved head that can't quite figure that out. But the Bible clearly teaches that God is sovereign in all things, and we are responsible God is not going to be held accountable for your sin. Your parents are not going to be held accountable for your sin. The pharmacy that doesn't stock the right drugs for your disorder is not going to be held responsible for your sin. We answer to God and God alone for our actions. And if we stumble, it's because we reject Christ willingly in sinful rebellion. It's because we disobey the word. And I assure you, my friend, everyone in hell will deserve to be there. And no one will be there that doesn't deserve to be there. Everyone in hell will be there because of their own sin and willful rebellion and disobedience against God. No one will be there because God made them sin. They will be there because they rejected Christ, because He was to them a stone of offense, because they disobeyed the Word, and because they stumbled over Him. The reality is, as Jesus Christ was presented to the Jews all those years ago and was rejected, He is still presented to men and women. He is now presented to you. What will you do with Jesus? Will He be to you the cornerstone, the foundation of life? Will you believe on Him? Will you repent of your sins and put your faith and trust in Him so that you will stand and not be put to shame and find rest in Him? 
Will the honor be on you? The, the benediction, the blessing be on you? Or will you disobey the word? Be like those builders who rejected the stone. And will he be to you a rock of offense, a rock of stumbling? For all those who do not believe, they will stumble and they will fall to their everlasting ruin. Now listen, I don't know if this is appropriate. But I'm begging you, please, 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 don't reject Jesus. Please don't do it. If you will receive him and believe in him, he'll save you. And you won't be put to shame. But I have to tell you in all candor and all love, if you reject him, you will go to hell. Now I told you we should think of Jesus, arms spread wide, inviting sinners to come to him. But if you reject him, he will crush you. And what kind of lousy, bum, sham preacher would I be if I conveyed a sort of Jesus who's a bull and mush? That's fine. Reject me all you want. It's all going to pan out in the end. Don't sweat it. It's not that way. We live in the world of facts. And for all those who rebel against God and reject God's own son, they're answerable. Please don't reject Jesus. As the prophet said, why should you die? Why should you perish? Life is offered to you. Be saved. Be reconciled to God. Do you know how Jesus ended the Sermon on the Mount? He talked about those who obey Jesus' words. They're like those who build their house on the rock. He says, when the rains come and the hail come, they will not fall. They'll be made to stand. He says, those who don't obey my words are like the foolish man who builds his house on the sand. And when the rains came and the floods came, he fell. And great was the fall of it. Those words should horrify all those here who are outside of Christ. But you see, we're going to sing a song in a minute. It's called Christ the Solid Rock. On Christ the Solid Rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. The first line of that song says, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That is the essence of true saving faith. For all who can say that line in the sincerity of their own hearts, they're saved. If their hope and trust is in the blood and righteousness of Christ, they will not be put to shame. I hope that there are some here who will sing that song for the first time with faith. My hope is in Christ. My hope's in the rock. My hope is in Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. I'm trusting in him. I'm standing on that firm foundation. I'm standing on that rock. If you do, I assure you as a gospel minister, you will be saved. May we all sing with one heart, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Let's pray. Our Father, what a promise to make those thousands of years ago in the context of the judgment of Israel to, to actually promise deliverance, that you would undertake to set this stone in Zion, and that you would make a way of salvation for sinful people who through believing on him 
could have their sins forgiven. We pray that you would still work in all of us, that our feet would be founded on the rock. Please, Lord, so work that none here would reject the Lord Jesus. Please open blind eyes. Please break through hard hearts. Every Christian says here in all sincerity to you, Lord, we don't want anyone here in this building to be crushed by the rock of offense. We want them to be saved. So please come and please work. Work new birth. Give the gift of faith and repentance. Give them hope in the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.